1970 was tough for NASA and Apollo. After the events of Apollo 13, the entire program had to be analyzed to make the spacecraft safer for any future missions. In the wake of the moon landing in 1969, NASA's budget was also being reduced. The mood at NASA was transforming from the giddy hangovers of the moon landing and the successful rescue of Apollo 13 to a more sober recognition that the mission had been accomplished already, and it was unclear what was going to happen next. Two future Apollo missions were canceled for budgetary reasons, disappointing a lot of the astronauts who just lost their moon missions. The culture of the astronauts and their families also began to come apart. Don Isley left his wife for another woman. Al Warden of Apollo 15 divorced his wife and remained remained on his crew, which I think is really interesting because there had been this feeling that everybody was going to pretend like everything was fine and that if you're, you had family issues, you were going to uh, be degraded, downgraded in your mission. And with Al Warden, it didn't happen. Right. You know, it was always known, but denied. But when it came out that astronauts' marriages were falling apart and they were having affairs with the realization that wasn't necessarily a career killer, it had a huge impact on the culture of the astronauts and the astronaut families in Houston, and specifically the famous Astronauts Wives Club, which basically dissolved during this period. To really just put a, a an actual sign on it, a big arrow pointing to everything that was going on, there were bumper stickers noticed on cars parked at NASA that read, Apollo 14, one giant leap for unemployment. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Woof. Yeah. <laughs> Turmoil. You, you, you succeed at Apollo 13, but the next story is everybody's still kind of understanding that it's unclear how long the Apollo program is going to be allowed to continue. And yet, amid all this turmoil, on January 31st, 1971, nine months after the near disaster of Apollo 13, Apollo 14 launched into the Florida sky, destined for the surface of the moon. Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Tuparev. This is the next installment in our series marking the 50th anniversaries of the crewed Apollo missions. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Jason Snell. Stephen, we are we are back because Apollo has returned to flight. It's very exciting. That's right. So we mentioned that this was only about nine months between 13 and 14. During that time, a lot had to get done. Big investigation going into what happened with the flight hardware on 13. And there were numerous changes made to the command and service modules to help prevent such a catastrophic failure from happening again. So here are a few things they did. A third oxygen tank was added to the service module, but instead of just putting it next to the previous two, they moved it around to the opposite side of the original two tanks. This was to prevent damage from one side of the module, taking out the entire oxygen supply. This tank could be isolated from the fuel cells, so if the entire electrical system failed, it could be used for breathable air for the crew to get home. And in fact, the tank held enough air to get them home from basically any point on their trip. The fans had been removed from the inside of the oxygen tanks, and a third heater was added to each tank. And now these heaters could be controlled independently from one another. So if one tank was doing something unexpected, you could isolate it. Uh, These were now controlled by a temperature sensor and not just a basic thermostat that could get stuck open, which we talked about on our last Apollo episode. They're going to stop all the things that could possibly have caused Apollo 13. That's right. Uh, Any wiring inside the tank was upgraded to non-flammable stainless steel. And I think this is probably the the most important one here is that a 400 amp hour battery was added to the service module. Now, it was based on the batteries developed for the limb, but this would allow the CSM to be powered electrically and not just from the fuel cell. So say that something really happens to the oxygen, the fuel cells are offline, you can tap into this battery and keep things running and keep things warm. And just like the oxygen, there was enough power in this large battery to provide power to get the astronauts home from anywhere on the mission. 
Uh, lastly, plastic bags for stowing five gallons of drinking water were made available in the command module. So all the water was stored out in the service module. But on Apollo 13, once all that had been powered down, the water storage tank eventually froze. And so this would allow astronauts to pull enough drinking water if something catastrophic happened to their service module before that water became ice. Yeah, and you think about you're you're always protecting against the last failure and not knowing about the next failure. But I think the other way to look at this is Apollo 13 showed a whole bunch of failure modes, they would say, that they hadn't anticipated that they wanted, you know, because again, the idea is not necessarily that what would happen on Apollo 13 would happen again, but that if we had another problem that uh, lost power in the in the command module, Mm -hmm. that having a battery there would be a good idea, right? Having the water available would be a good idea. And so adding the contingency plans in. And as far as I can tell, um, none of these ever were needed, but they didn't know that. That, that's right. And and doing all this in a way that was redundant, something as simple as moving the oxygen tank opposite from the others, right? That seems like a simple thing. I'm sure it wasn't because the service module was basically full and they had to rearrange a bunch of stuff and and rework systems. And to do all that in nine months, honestly, is pretty incredible to me. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk about the crew. Who's going on Apollo 14? Uh, we're going to start with Alan Shepard. Hey, I know that name. <laughs> you know, the story of Alan Shepard is pretty remarkable. And I, I know we've talked about it before when we talked about the Mercury missions. He got into the Naval Academy at 16 years old. He was too young. So he went to a prep school for a year and then on to Annapolis. Um, he was in the Navy in World War II, became an aviator in 1946, a test pilot in 1950, and in 1959 was selected as one of the original Mercury 7. And in May of 1961, he flew the first Project Mercury flight, Freedom 7, and was the first American in space, a suborbital flight. It only lasted about 20 minutes, but he was uh, the first American in space. John Glenn then followed uh, being the first American in orbit. Now, what happened to Alan Shepard after that is interesting. While he was planning to pilot a Gemini mission and then move on to Apollo, he suddenly began experiencing extreme episodes of vertigo. Uh, this is not good if mm, you're a not, pilot. No, not good. Mm -mm, no, he was diagnosed with something called Meniere's syndrome, which is a buildup of fluid in the inner ear that affects balance because our balance sense is in our inner ear. It didn't just take him out of the Mercury and uh, the ultimately the Gemini rotations. It grounded him from flying at all. So it really just the worst thing that could happen to somebody who is a pilot and an astronaut. Now, we've mentioned that Deke Slayton, who was in charge of flight crew operations, he was also an astronaut who was grounded because of a heart issue. Uh, Alan Shepard was named the head of the astronaut office, so sort of uh, the... Uh, second in command to Deke in charge of uh, crewed space flight at NASA in this period. The astronauts basically being managed by two of their own, uh, two people who really desperately wanted to fly again, but for whatever reason couldn't, at least not yet. But both of them would eventually. Um, also, as an aside, while we're talking about Alan Shepard, I wanted to mention he was a successful businessman, even while an astronaut um, he made a bunch of investments, invested in like banks and real estate. He had a he had a very fancy house. Unlike most of the astronauts, he had this super pricey, expensive, fancy house in Houston. He was at the this point in the late '60s as the Apollo program is cranking on, on the verge of becoming a millionaire, which really meant a lot in the '60s and '70s. Um, but he wanted to fly. That was sure. the thing that he really wanted to do was fly. His vertigo did not go away. And then his fellow astronaut, Tom Stafford, referred him to a surgeon in Los Angeles whose name was William House. Now, William House is, among other things, the person who, one of the people who invented the cochlear implant, which is used to uh, bring back hearing to people who have lost their hearing by running wires directly into the into the uh, uh, the brain or into the nerves from the it, it's, it wires up the audio, auditory system for people who are deaf, 
And uh, there are a lot. House isn't the only inventor of them. There were other inventors of them, but he is one of the early pioneers and recognized as such in uh, cochlear implants. So he's an ear specialist. By the way, modern cochlear implants, the stuff used today, use a lot of techniques that were invented by somebody who was a NASA engineer <laughs> in the 70s doing signal processing. So it is all connected. So anyway, House operated on Alan Shepard, an experimental surgery. Shepard had checked in. Uh, this is the spring of 68, checked into the hospital under an assumed name. They implanted, I, I think basically they drill, drilled a, a hole in the bone and implanted this silicone tube. And the idea there is that it was going to drain that excess fluid in the ear into the uh, the the spinal column, I think. It drains the, the fluid away. Mm-hmm. And it worked. By 1969, he was cleared to fly again. And now I, I mentioned that Alan Shepard was in charge of the astronaut office. That allowed him to assign himself to the next prime crew of the next Apollo mission at that point, mm. um, which was 13. Now, the head of manned spaceflight at NASA, a guy named George Muller, who is basically Deke's boss, said, uh, you need more time to train. So this is that this is the moment in Apollo 13, the movie, where Jim Lovell gets really excited because they got moved up in the schedule, this is that same moment, which is they decided to push Alan Shepard back to Apollo 14, let Jim Lovell fly on Apollo 13 with his crew. And although there was some grumbling in the astronaut office about people who really wanted to go to the moon, that he leapt ahead, you could argue that he's actually been waiting for a flight assignment since the first Mercury flight. Yeah. So, you know, you could cut him some slack there. But all that grumbling seems to have ceased because the moment that he jumped back in as an active uh, commander in an Apollo mission, uh, he did all the hard work that a commander has to do. He was a fierce supporter of his crew. He was in the gym. He was doing, you know, he he was doing everything full out. He was definitely not kind of riding in there on half power and expecting to be treated like a, a hero for being the first Mercury astronaut that didn't happen. And so he, he won people over and showed, uh, showed who he was, who he was and, and, and why he did deserve to be there, even though he picked himself. I mean, what a roller coaster of a decade. If you think from his first flight going through all of that and then landing on Apollo 14, that's in a pretty amazing 10 or 11 year time span. Yeah, uh, it, it was it was definitely a, a roller coaster ride for him. But he he ultimately got what he wanted, which was to go to the moon. It just took a secret surgery under an assumed name <laughs> that it was experimental at the time. But he he did it. He got it. Yeah, he, he was willing to take that risk, I guess, to to be able to fly again. Right. Not only just being an astronaut, but being uh, able to fly at all was just imagine having that be taken away from you. He 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 was willing to do that. Stu Rusa. Stuart Russo on this crew, uh, a guy from Oklahoma. Interesting. He started uh, working for the U.S. Forest Service as a smoke jumper, you know, fighting fires in Oregon and California. Uh, Then he went into the Air Force. In the 50s, he was the pilot of a nuclear bombing crew. Uh, Not widely discussed. And uh, depending on what books you read, you might not even see this. But he actually, in the 50s, in the you know, in the in the Cold War, he was the pilot of a crew that had been trained to, like, fly to Russia and skim over the surface, like, 10, 20 feet up until they get near their target and then fly up and drop their atomic bomb and, and immediately pivot out. And then I believe they didn't have enough fuel to actually get back all the way back home. So then they would they would ditch and they would parachute out and then they had to walk the rest of the way, potentially through enemy territory. It was bananas kind of cold war stuff but that was that was one of his jobs in the air force at the same time he was also getting degrees working toward a degree because he was in the air force he was stationed in a bunch of different places he started at oklahoma state he went to the university of arizona ultimately he got a degree in aeronautical engineering from the university of colorado at boulder and then became a test pilot at edwards air force base is this sounding familiar this is how you become an astronaut (laughs) was selected in 1966 as an astronaut Stu Russo was the Capcom for during the pad fire of Apollo 1, which Ooh. I didn't realize. So he's the one who was talking to them in those moments before and then reacting after the fire. And then Alan Shepard himself, because of course head of the astronaut office, selected Stu Russo to be support for Apollo 9 and said cryptically to him, be patient, I've got something in the works. And this was before he had assigned himself to 
four to thirteen, which became fourteen. Uh, he Stewart ended up as the Capcom for Apollo Nine as well. He was on the mic every minute the crew was awake during that mission. So you know, basically, he he slept when they slept and was up when they were up. Uh, impressed everyone in the room for how on top of it he was. In fact, somebody said that they felt like he knew more than a lot of the other managers of the mission. He was so on top of it. He had answers that other people were having to look up and things like that. And he really proved himself. So he put those two things together and Alan Shepard was like, yeah, I want that guy um, for 13, which again became 14. And Stu Rusa, because he was a command module guy, he oversaw the changes that you described to the command module after 13. He was the astronaut who was going to the, the to the factories and supervising all of those changes. Um, and that you, you might say, well, why didn't Al Shepard do that? And the answer is Al Shepard was a really good manager and a really good commander. And he knew that Stu Rusa would be perfect for that job. And he didn't micromanage him. He said, You're, that's your baby. You go take care of the command module. And uh, and he did. Uh, so lastly, we have Edgar Mitchell, yeah, a native to New Mexico. He learned to fly at thirteen, which I have so many questions about. <laughs> Stephen, it turns out astronauts—they're ah, special people. I think is the answer is that they're maybe kind of remarkable people, maybe a little bit. He got his pilot license at sixteen, graduated in nineteen fifty-two from Carnegie Mellon, and entered the Navy. Became a naval aviator and ended up as a research pilot. Sounding familiar? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so this is this is the very similar paths. He got a second bachelor's degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, this is his. Uh, this is the thing that's remarkable about Ed Mitchell is that he was. Uh, uh, he has so many degrees. He he, uh, you know, he didn't stop with the, the Carnegie Mellon degree, right? <laughs> Which would be a real high watermark for most of us, right? He's like, I'm gonna keep going. Uh, got a second bachelor's degree in 1961 from USN postgrad, and then a PhD in aeronautics and astronautics from MIT in 1964. We've got a couple of brainiacs on this mission. Yeah. Selected as an astronaut in 1966. And as you would imagine, he was considered uh, an intellectual, mm-hmm. and the lunar module was was his baby. In fact, he was one of the people working in the limb simulator during 13. Remember we talked about this, trying to fly the whole Apollo command service limb system from the limb really wasn't ever the plan. Right. And that really <laughs> changed flight dynamics. You know, things from like, yeah. where is center on this? Like none of it made any sense to the training they had. And so Ed Mitchell was one of those guys in the simulator, in the room, trying to figure out how to fly this thing and passing those dynamics up to the crew. And so really very deeply engaged with the the mission right before him. Right. And you can see the the brilliance here of uh, Al Shepard sort of saying, I've got my command module guy and my limb guy. Yes. And that's that's right. Like those that's who you want with you as the commander cuz you're going down in the limb, but you want you want the guy you're going down there with to be your limb expert and you want the guy staying up in the command module to be the command module mm-hmm. expert and these guys were. Um I should I should mention the spacecraft, but I'll also point out that due to the delay caused by Apollo 13 and the fact that they were Apollo 13 before they were Apollo 14, this crew trained together for 19 months. It's the longest time that any Apollo crew group existed because of all of those other things going on. So these guys were a a pretty tight team by the time that they launched on Apollo 14. And the spacecraft they took, the command service module was called Kitty Hawk, after, of course, where the Wright brothers first flew the first airplane. And the lunar module was called Antares, which is weird, uh, named after the star that they would use to orient in the lunar module before they landed on the moon. I got to think that they just would talk about find Antares, where is Antares, where is it, where is it? And then it became this thing that then sort of like, they're like, well, let's call the the Lem Antares because that's, that's what it's all about. If we don't see Antares, we can't land. So it'll be a reminder of what star to look for, maybe. I don't know. But anyway, Kitty Hawk and Antares are your Apollo 14 spacecraft. And this spacecraft launched on... January 31st, 1971, from Launch Complex 39A. The launch was held for 40 minutes, which was actually a first for the Apollo program. Member 12 was struck by lightning. Mm. (laughs) You don't want to repeat that. Um, 
during learning lessons of past missions again. I see it. I see what they're doing there. Mm -hmm. And during the the downtime, the Saturn V had been updated to address the pogo and oscillation issues that had continued to sort of chase this rocket, including on 13, where they had some pogo issues. They had quite the audience. As you'd imagine, a return to flight mission is going to draw some attention. They had uh, the Prince of Spain, the future King Juan Carlos I, and the U.S. Vice President Agnew was there as well. Got some dignitaries. The launch went smoothly. No lightning strikes, no pogo. Everything was smooth. But the first major milestone after reaching orbit uh, didn't go to plan. After you launch the Apollo Command Service Module, is it? it's not lined up the way it needs to be. You have to take, you have to spin it around and go up and, and collect your limb from the stage that is beneath you when you launch. As Russo went to go do this, the docking mechanism wouldn't activate. So basically the command service module would not hard dock with the, the limb. You need that so you can take it with you, go to the moon. Without it, you're not going anywhere. Uh, controllers in Houston had him try... Several more times over the course of a couple of hours, but uh, to no avail. Astronauts are resourceful, so they had some other ideas that they were thinking of. They could suit up and open up into the vacuum and go out and like poke at the latch and be like, what the heck is going on out here and repair it if needed. They could also potentially, and I think this is hilarious, suit up and open the hatch and actually like literally reach out and pull the two craft together. Uh, but it was unclear if Houston would go for something like that. Uh, so they, so instead what they did is they, they thought that they thought it was the docking probe, right? The idea that it's this little guidance that, that kind of pulls the CSM and the, and the limb together. What is it? The receiving drogue is like, it reaches the end and there are these three little latches that are supposed to extend and it's, and it's a soft dock and then they go boop, 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 boop. And the 12 docking latches all engage and you get the hard dock and then you've got a little tunnel to the limb and everything's good. And they couldn't make the soft dock. So what they decided to do is fire their thrusters. <laughs> sure. What, maybe we could dock by just like pushing with yeah. rockets up against it. Um, and then when the pu- when the pushing is happening, Shepard would uh, flip the switch to retract the docking probe and see if they got a hard dock. And it, it worked. <laughs> they got it all lined up and yeah. banged into the thing. And once they were up against it flush, those, those 12 docking latches were able to fire. Definitely not as planned, but it was successful. Mm. Uh, I think... This honestly gives credit to to Rusa and this crew. Like they really knew this hardware, and they figured that this would be okay. Um, not that they had much of a choice, because if it doesn't work, you're not going to the moon. You're coming home, as you would imagine. There was a big cheer at Mission Control, but they wanted to make sure that there weren't any issues in the tunnel because of all, you know multiple attempts and want to make sure nothing had been damaged. But that was all in the clear. And after this. Things basically settled down for the crew of 14 for their trip to the moon. Uh, They had a couple of mid-course correction burns, not uncommon. There were some connectivity issues with Alan Shepard's biomedical sensors, but not a big deal. And uh, yeah, it was after this sort of eventful start, they were off on their way. What happened next is they all went to sleep, except Ed Mitchell stayed awake for 45 minutes until the other guys were asleep and then did a completely unauthorized experiment into extrasensory perception. That's what happened next. Uh, you didn't know this. I, I, I told you this and you were like, no, that's not what. No. Huh? What? Yeah, I sent huh? you a screenshot of the Google Doc. I was like, wait, what are you talking about? So what is this? Yeah. Well, Ed Mitchell, we said uh, intellectual PhD. He was also, and this carried on to the rest of his life. He was also very much a open to possibilities kind of guy. And it was the early 70s. And there was a lot of thought about like, could we use scientific principles to determine whether psychic powers are possible? Um, and so, uh, one of the standard ESP experiments was you would look, if anybody's seen Ghostbusters, it's the fake, uh, ridiculous experiment that Bill Murray does in the first scene of that movie, um, where he's, uh, asking a, uh, a couple of experiment, uh, subjects who are students at Columbia to, um, 
what sh- basically guess what shape he's looking at. And this was a real thing. Those are the ESP tests. They're like a circle and a wavy line and, you know, uh, stuff like that. Um, and so he had he had set up with people on the ground who were going to be part of this experiment that 45 minutes into the sleep period, so at a very specific time, at that time, he would take out a card and had been given a number, but didn't know what it was, but had been given a number to look at on the card of which shape to look at. And he was going to look at that shape and visualize that shape in his mind. And at that very same moment on planet Earth, uh, like two men who thought they were psychic, I don't know, tried to receive the image that he sent. And although in the book that I read about this, it doesn't uh, specifically say that nothing came of this, I can tell you. Nothing came of this. <laughs> and when NASA found out about it later, it was actually in a, I think, I think they found out about it later in a news story that said, oh, astronaut, an astronaut did an ESP thing. And Al Shepard was like, what? What the heck? And Ed yeah. Mitchell's like, yeah, I did it. And, and he's like, uh, all right, whatever. Like that was, but it's true. ESP experiments unauthorized on Apollo 14. Where are they going? They're going the same place Apollo 13 was going. That had to hurt the Apollo 13 guys, right? So back to the Framaro Highlands, which is uh, different terrain. The, the previous Apollo landings had been targeted at these seas, right? The Sea of Tranquility, which is basically a lava flow. It's a very different kind of terrain than the Lunar Highlands. They're they're colored differently. They're ge- geologically very different and potentially tell a much more interesting story of the history of the moon. And keep in mind, we know a lot more about the history of the moon now because of Apollo. But at the time, all they really had were samples from the from the lowlands from these, these lava plains. So they go to the Fra Moro Highlands. This is a potentially a much harder place to get to. So they have to drop into a lower orbit around the moon than previously taken so that they have more fuel in order to find the right place to land. So they drop it in this lower orbit you describe, the limb separates, and that's all fine. You know, the docking uh, issues from before didn't affect this. But it became clear that something was going on with this limb. The onboard computer received an abort signal. So there was an abort switch, and this switch was telling the computer, hey, an astronaut's pressed me. We need to get out of here. Uh, it was feared on the ground that what was actually happening is that the switch was shorting out. Maybe there was a loose ball of uh, solder behind it or something had become disconnected. Anyways, this switch was being activated on its own. They asked Ed Mitchell to tap the panel around the abort button to see if anything would shake loose, you know. So you rammed into this limb to <laughs> to dock with it. Just beat on its panel and maybe the abort command will stop. It was successful for a few hmm. minutes. Uh, this led to an off-color joke by Fred Hayes, who was the Capcom at the moment. Oh, Fred Hayes, uh, what are you doing? Oh, Fred Hayes. But the fix was temporary and the abort signal was sent again pretty quickly. That's good. You know, this could have been huge, right? Because as we know, the, the computer, it's an old, old style, little tiny, teeny, tiny computer. And among its duties is to abort if there's a problem like this. <laughs> so the moment a stray abort gets sent, they uh, separate the ascent stage from the limb and fire the ascent motor to get back up and the mission is over, mm-hmm. right? So what you don't want is a false abort uh, that is that ruins your mission. Here's the problem though. This, this computer, it, it's hardwired, literally, because the memory in the limb computer was wires. Um, look it up. It's bananas. We talked about it in a previous episode. And it, it couldn't modify it from the ground like and send it up. Right. So what happened is there's a software team at MIT that had built this system and they worked out a way that like if the system had thought an abort had already happened, thought this is computer programmer stuff, it's great. It's like, what if the system thought the abort had already happened? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then... It wouldn't even look at the limb because it would be like the limb can't be there anymore because the abort already happened. Forget about it. Right. Because the the concern is if the abort command is sent after descending to the surface, 
like you said, it's automatic. It pops the top off the thing and they're gone, right? Like right. It's, that's the end of it. And uh, you want to be on board when that happens, I guess. Yeah, well, that's also true. You're right. You're right. It's not just when you're in the limb. It's when you're not in the limb. That it <laughs> that's would be the a worst big, part, actually. Big, big, big problem. Big problem. Yeah, R- really, really a, a very serious issue. So how do you solve this? Well, all right. What if we just make it so that there is no abort command? Well, how do we do that? So there's a programmer down at MIT named Don Isles. He figured out the necessary code changes. Um which required uh, it was a procedure requiring 61 keystrokes on the disk key the little uh number pad on the lem computer and a couple of manual steps so then they have to radio up to mitchell the steps and keystrokes Whew. and then he keys them in so you you have a, a, a an astronaut entering in code changes to your software that will allow you to land on the moon only minutes before you ignite the engine to go land on the moon. And in fact, while they're doing their first burn to slow down and lower in orbit, like I mentioned, he had a few more that he keyed in. So they're literally descending to the moon while making changes to the Mm. software on their computer to enable them to not have an abort condition. Wow. Um, Yeah. But hey, Ed Mitchell's the guy for the job, right? He's the expert. He is. He is. Uh, I'll I'll put a couple of links in the show notes about Don Isles, who is a uh, Rolling Stone did an article about him afterward. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> uh, the headline is "Weird Looking Freak Saves Apollo 14." Uh, Don Isles, interesting guy, mm-hmm. <laughs> talks about uh, whether getting stoned made him a better computer programmer. It's it's a it is a vintage article from the seventies in Rolling Stone, and it, it it reads like it, but it's amazing. It's amazing, and there's a, a whole site called WeHackTheMoon.com that's all about the um, lunar uh, lander and the Apollo technology, basically all the computer stuff that they did, um, and so so yeah, that was that was uh, that was the story. And and then they, you know, Ed Mitchell could uh, make sure that they, they didn't, the limb didn't abort itself and uh, they could abort, they could abort it, but the computer wasn't going to auto abort them. That uh, was unfortunately not the only problem on this limb. Of course not. <laughs> of course not. There's this onboard landing radar and its job is to provide the crew with altitude and descent speed information. This on... Apollo 14 basically failed when it was first powered on. Uh, The ground instructed the crew to reset the power breaker it was on, and thankfully that got it going, uh, at a mere 22,000 feet above the surface. Now, in the mission rules, an abort was required if the radar was inactive under 10,000 feet. So they were able to continue this, but a pretty close margin there. Um, But despite all of this, Alan Shepard set down the limb closer to its intended landing target than on any other Apollo mission. Mm-hmm. They're figuring this stuff out. They are. All right. Well, we're on the moon, Stephen. All right. Mentally. Mm-hmm. Picture it. We're on the moon. Time for an ad break, I say. Sounds good. Just to, We're going to compose ourselves here in the limb while you listen to this sponsor, because this episode of Liftoff, this very special episode, is brought to you by Tuparev Technologies. More than a decade ago, a group of astronomers met successively for two years at the Heterogeneous Network of Telescopes Conference that took place in Tucson, Arizona, and Göttingen, Germany, and they would discuss creating a global network of interconnected astronomical observatories. Because of the pandemic and the need of the scientific community to collaborate remotely on global projects, the need for such a network was never more acute than now. A couple of months ago, the START cluster team at Tuparev Technologies decided to finally implement this idea, and they're announcing it. It is the Polis Initiative, short for Public Observatory Location and Information Service. It's an open protocol of APIs that will allow anyone to obtain information about observatories around the world and in the solar system. And at later stages, it will allow different observatories to exchange information and collaborate on joint scientific projects or exchange observation times. The first experimental polis service is already up and running. An app and an information site are currently being implemented. You can find out more about Polis by going to GitHub. That's github.com slash astro dash Polis, A-S-T-R-O dash P-O-L-I-S. And you're welcome to join the initiative or go to starcluster.app where you can also subscribe to the Star Cluster newsletter. Thank you to Tuparev Technologies for supporting Liftoff and all of Relay FM. So let's talk about some of the science that was taken 
uh, to the moon for Apollo yeah, 14. Let's some do of it. The, the experiments. Uh, like other missions, Apollo 14 brought along the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiments Package, which was just a way to get a bunch of experiments to the moon and <laughs> basically in one big bundle. Uh, there were several components to this. Uh, they had both active and passive seismic experiments. The passive one was designed to detect vibrations in the lunar surface and measure changes in gravity at a given location, looking at moonquakes and when spent Apollo hardware would smash into the moon or anything else that may hit the moon. But the active seismic experiment is way more exciting. So it's a piece of equi- it comes with a piece of equipment named the Thumper. It's designed to set off small charges into the surface of the moon. So they are making seismic activity and then measuring it at set distances away. Uh, there's 22 of these on 14, 13 of them went off. And if that wasn't exciting enough, there's also a mortar package designed to lob a set of four explosives from varying distances, uh, again, to measure seismic activity, to try to understand what is under the surface. The crew had to be safe and sound in the limb for this. Yeah. <laughs> if this goes wrong, you want to be inside. Not that Setting the limb would provide... explosives on the moon. You know, whatever. Yeah. Not that the limb would provide that much protection, I guess, but it's better than nothing. Better than nothing, yeah. Mm-hmm. You could at least uh, fire off the the emergency, you know, return to orbit... <laughs> Fire off the engine and just get out of there. Just get out. If if bad uh, stuff happens. Yeah. yeah. So NASA attempted to fire them. It didn't work. The The thought is that maybe they just waited too long. They were going to fire them after uh. the crew left the moon entirely. But it didn't work out, which is a bummer. But still, mortar package on the moon. Great. Pretty exciting. Now we've got like an old landmine up there on the moon. Just mm-hmm. what we want. Yeah. Four of them. Uh, hopefully they're expired by now. Mm. They also had the Charged Particle Lunar Environment Experiment or... Simply, simply, simply. It was designed to measure the charged particles striking the lunar surface. So we've talked about this in current missions in our time, looking at solar wind, very similar thing here. They want to be able to pick up and detect what sort of charged particles are striking the surface. Uh, And then also included a laser ranging rectoreflector placed on the surface for scientists on Earth to measure the distance to the moon using lasers. These obviously don't require power, and they're still in use today, which is cool. And uh, lastly, a couple of other ion detection experiments to kind of go hand-in-hand with the charged particle experiment, uh, looking to understand the interaction between the solar wind uh, and the moon. moon has a very... Mm-hmm. Very tenuous atmosphere, if you can even call it that, <laughs> trying to understand that interaction. And um, there were actually uh, a, a compatibility issue with some of these tests where they they had to keep them apart from each other because the magnetic field in one would impact the other, which is oh. interesting. You want to tell me about the, the space wheelbarrow? Yeah, let's go to let's go on a walk. Let's go on a moonwalk, and we do need we we. It's I'd say it's more of a dolly than a wheelbarrow, but yeah, you know, it's the yeah you pull it right, so it's you don't pull a wheelbarrow. It's the Met, the modular equipment transporter. It is your dolly for space stuff. On Apollo twelve, Pete Conrad and Alan Bean had been um, lugging all of the hardware across the surface, so they gave them a dolly. Yay! Uh, two wheels designed by Goodyear, technically the first wheels on the moon. And you just pulled it along, except <laughs> it bounced in the low lunar gravity. Oh, no. So in the end, uh, they mostly just the two guys carried it. So yeah, that didn't didn't work out quite like they hoped, but still better than nothing that they've got a little kind of carrier thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, this was the only time the the Met was used because then they included the uh, lunar rover in Apollo 15. So they didn't they could just drive around instead of carrying a dolly around. This moonwalk is really notable. Because it was brutal. Yeah. <laughs> That's the short, short version. They were supposed to collect a bunch of rocks. The idea was they were going to hike to Cone Crater, to the rim of this crater called Cone Crater. Because at the rim of Cone Crater, you would have the rocks that had been blasted out the most deeply from the center of the impact that created the crater. Also, it would be a, a nice view. They might be able to see things, observe things in the crater from close up. But... 
The cone crater rim was a mile away from the limb uphill. And even though gravity is uh, a lot less on the moon, they are in their heavy suits and they were concerned about getting there. They are monitoring their vitals and like their, their, uh, their pulses went too high and they had to make them stop and rest at, at points, take rest breaks. And it turns out it's also really easy to get lost on the moon, even with a lot of preparation. There are rolling hills and bumps and all this stuff, and it's basically all gray. And um, at, at some point they realized they weren't actually where they thought they were. They came up a ridge thinking it was the crater rim to discover it was just this little ridge and not the edge of the crater, and it kept on going. They got the moonwalk extended 30 minutes. Now, along the way, they have actually spotted a bunch of good rocks that got blasted out of the the crater that they knew that they were going to be able to get, but they really wanted to see the crater. Ultimately, they were told it's time to turn around off to their right. I think they saw a bunch of like white rocks that were laying on the ground that they thought would be like really good samples. So they walked over to the white rocks, collected samples from them and then turned back and collected more samples along the way. The white rocks, they were like 20 feet away from the rim of the crater at that point, but they didn't realize it. They actually, that was their closest point Oh gosh, uh, to the crater. Uh, but they didn't know it, and so then they turned around. Now, in 2009, the Lunar Reconnaissance Observer took high-resolution pictures of the Apollo 14 landing site where you could see their tracks, and uh, they could actually see how they got lost, and they didn't really kind of curve to the left as much as they needed to to hit the crater head-on. They did end up just a few feet away from with those white rocks. But anyway, it was a it was a brutal long walk. They didn't get to their destination, even though they did take samples. They didn't properly label the samples. I think they were kind of exhausted. They're like, this rock has a notable shape. You'll be able to tell it when we get back. And then they look at all the rocks and they're like, but guys, all these rocks have notable shapes. Which one is the <laughs> one you were referring to? And they look at the rocks and they're like, uh, I don't know. So, yeah, there were a lot of like photographic reconstructions where they try to like, where did you take the sample? Is it this? Is this the rock? So that they could figure out where these samples came from because geologists want to know that. And uh, they apparently didn't do a very good job of that um, at all. <laughs> so uh, NASA geologist Lee Silver stated the Apollo 14 crews did not have the right attitude, did not learn enough about their mission and had the burden of not having the best possible pre-flight photography and they weren't ready. That seems harsh Ouch. to me. So it is it is harsh, but I would say this was at a moment when there was a real push and pull at NASA and we're going to get into this in the future missions about really sending scientists and geologists to the moon. Mm-hmm. There there was, and, and it did ultimately happen, and the rest of these missions were much more science-oriented. But Apollo 14, like 12 and 11, obviously, was very much a, we sent people to the moon, they get up, they look around, and they come back. They were not extended science missions in the same way, and the science wasn't really the, the focus. And, you know, getting there was the focus. <laughs> and, you know, also, I think in addition to the kind of frustration that scientists had that these astronauts weren't really qualified to do science on the moon, right. was this perception that even though they're not qualified, maybe they could do their best. And uh, as we're going to see in a, in a minute, um, there were other shenanigans that happened on the moon. And I think that was also part of their frustration. So I would put this quote in that context, that there was a lot of friction going on about astronauts not giving the geologists what they wanted. Let's talk about TV. Oh, boy. These missions, uh, especially the early ones, beaming back live television from space was a, a big thing, right? And we talked about in 13 how basically no one cared until there was an accident. Uh, but they still carried uh, TV cameras, uh, color TV camera to the moon on 14. Uh, on Apollo 12, we talked about how Alan Bean destroyed this very camera by pointing it at the sun accidentally. Alan Bean was a little accident proof. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> he got hit in the head with the, the, the camera when they splashed down, too. It got its revenge, I guess, is what happened. So that camera had been built by Westinghouse, and after the 12 mission was repaired, upgraded, and reused on 14. But if you look at footage from 14, we have a link in the show notes to some of it. The exposure is really off. So the, the the white suits worn by the crew are basically blown out. I mean, they just look like they're glowing in the dark. <laughs> it's really contrasty, and it's really hard to see what's going on. And this was a problem, and NASA wasn't happy with it. So they retired this Westinghouse camera, 
and a new camera built by RCA replaced it for future lunar operations. Uh, the Westinghouse camera was basically just used in the command module. It didn't go, get to go outside and play anymore. Uh, Alas. Uh, but, you know, cameras carried on to the three Skylab missions and even the Apollo Soyuz test project. But when you look at this footage, this is why it's so it's so weird looking. And it looks out of place if you watch the mission's television coverage in order because this camera just didn't do what it was supposed to do. Hmm. Uh, however... Uh, the 1969-1970 Emmy Awards for Outstanding Achievement in Technical Engineering and Development, it was awarded to NASA for the conceptual aspects of the color Apollo television camera and to the Westinghouse Electric Corporation for the development of the camera. So even though it didn't perform the way people wanted it to, still award-winning. Still won an Emmy. It's great. More than me. Okay, Stephen, you need to talk about the golf ball now. Yes. It's time. This is like what this other than Neil Armstrong putting his foot on the moon. I feel like this is the thing people remember about the Apollo project is this dumb stunt that Al Shepard did here. Uh, So Alan Shepard took two golf balls with him as well as the head of a six iron golf club. I don't play golf. Six iron is a type of golf club. Apparently everyone who plays golf listening to me just died inside. (laughs) But he took all that to the moon. He'd been planning this for some time. And he picked this head because he could attach it to the handle of one of the tools they used out on the surface to create a makeshift lunar golf club. It's pretty great. So he had these two balls, put them down on the surface. One he hit into a nearby crater. Yeah, he shanked it. Yeah. He shanked it. He, he did. Now, to be fair, uh, uh, he, he has to hit it with one hand because you can't put the two arms together really on a spacesuit. Right. So he's one-handing it in order to like it, it, it's an unnatural movement. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna criticize him too much for for shanking his first uh, attempt to hit a golf ball on the moon. No, the suit was not designed with golf in mind. No, it really wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but he really connected on the second one. Really, really cranked it, and he just exclaims loudly that it flew for miles and miles and miles in the low gravity of the moon. Like true boyish happiness mm-hmm. that he connected with this golf ball. I love it. I love that story. Me too. Uh, Ed Mitchell threw uh, one of his tools like a javelin, by the way, just for track and field fans out there into this. Thing. It's fun with lunar gravity. Why not? I actually, as much as I, you know, I, I mentioned the, the the scientists kind of roll their eyes at stuff like this. Uh, I think it's great. I think it's hilarious. He used he used you know the tool as the as the shaft and then and then put the golf club head on it and then you know hit the golf ball i just think it's hilarious and actually kind of a cool demonstration of lunar gravity i think as well so not just an iconic image but kind of kind of uh kind of great ethan siegel who has a blog called starts with a bang he's a a theoretical astrophysicist who writes about science stuff uh did a calculation that theoretically in an ideal scenario a golf ball could travel about two and a half miles on the moon wow um, Shepard's drive is probably not ideal, but probably the longest anybody's hit a golf ball because of the gravity thing. But but I'll, I'll just point out, we have not seen where the golf ball landed. The golf ball remains available to be retrieved by a future lunar souvenir seeker. There you go. We don't know, how, we don't know the length of, of that drive. So until we retrieve the golf ball, I guess the drive will just have to be um, theoretical in, in length. Miles and miles and miles. Miles and miles. All right, let's go home. Okay. Talk about some experiments that they did on the flight. We're back back up in the in the CSM. What did, what did they do up there? What Stephen, why don't you tell me about your, your command and service module experiments? Okay. Uh, so the window meteoroid experiment studied impacts on the windows of the Apollo 14 command module. They're looking to obtain information about the size and distribution of very small micrometeorites. Nice. It's a big deal. We still talk about that today with the, you know, space debris, the International Space Station. You want to understand what's out there. The liquid transfer demonstration studied how different types of tank design influence the pumping of liquids between those tanks and microgravity. Well, see, these are all International Space Station experiments that we've done for the last 20 years, but microgravity was not a, an environment we could just we just had a space station in that we hung out in so like w- right. while you're up there circling the moon 
or while you're coming back to Earth for three days, can you run some microgravity experiments for us? Because we don't know how mm-hmm. it works. And so there's a lot of that going on here. There is. Uh, there's also the light flashes experiment. Very just exacting name. Mm. It studied light flashes seen by the crew that are related to charged particles in space. So charged particles interacting with their spacecraft or and hit, hit, as they hit fly through the back through of them. their eye and, and uh, there's a flash. Right. And like, what was that? Mm-hmm. Yep. So they had the light flashes experiment to study nice, those. Nice. The old LFE. <laughs> there was the S-band transponder experiment, which was measuring regional variations in the moon's gravitational acceleration. So gravity around the moon isn't all the same. It's, it's not smooth. They have these things called lumpy. Ma- mass cons, which are mass concentrations that make it more gravity in some places than others, which is really bad if you're trying to orbit the moon. And it wasn't fully mapped. So uh, it now now is largely mapped. But in this era, it was like a huge deal if you're trying to orbit the moon and uh, can't actually perfectly calculate how that's going to go because the gravity shifts as you orbit it. And then lastly, the bi-static radar experiment measured scattering of radar waves from the lunar surface. Fun. Fun. That, actually, that's that's a, a technique, you know, bouncing radar off of surfaces is how we map, you know, make 3D topographical maps now, including of the moon and Mars. And I think we've done Venus, too. Like, it's a great way. Spacecraft do that all the time, right? You bounce radar waves off. So this was a fun experiment. I want to talk about... Is it an experiment, sort of? Uh, which is the moon trees? Wait, this is a fun. <laughs> Wait, this what? is a fun thing. Are there trees on the moon? The moon people and their moon trees. No, the moon trees was an experiment. Now I mentioned that Stu Rusa was a smoke jumper, worked for the uh, U.S. Forest Service. Uh, so there was a joint Forest Service NASA project on Apollo 14. Stu Russo was officially in charge of it. Of course, he's up in the command module. And uh, what they did is they took 500 seeds of various trees in a little seed pack on Apollo 14. They just rode along in the CSM. They rode along in the Kitty Hawk. They didn't go down to the surface of the moon. They didn't plant them or anything. They didn't grow them on the ship. They just took the seeds. And the idea, again, this is early early space experiment kind of thing of like, will they be different after having been in space? Friends, the answer is no. They're just seeds. It's <laughs> fine. But they didn't know. And also, the idea was that this is actually kind of an amazingly clever PR move, I think. Yeah. Ultimately, they, so they germinated the the seeds. Four hundred twenty of them formed seedlings. Nice. They did have a uh, a control group that they compared them to. There were no differences. A, tr- a tree is a tree is a tree. But those four hundred twenty seedlings were then distributed uh, throughout the United States and a few places in other countries too. But in in every, almost every U.S. state, I'm not sure if every U.S. state has one, but most do. And I was reading about this, and I'm thinking, I have sw- I could swear that I've seen one. I could swear that I read a plaque that said this was ta- this seed was taken around the moon, and I was I was I went to there's a Wikipedia page that's like the, where the moon trees are, and I realized there's a Douglas fir at the corner of the uh, student center essentially on the campus of the University of Oregon where my daughter goes to college that I have walked past innumerable times, and there is a a plaque out in front of it that says this is a moon tree. It was taken around the moon uh, in lunar orbit many times by. Stu Rusa and the crew of Apollo 14. So uh, you can look it up and see if there's a moon tree near you. Stephen, I looked it up. There's not a moon tree near you. Sorry. No, I've got to drive a, a few hours yeah. to, to see one. Alas. But you know what? When you see it, you'll be like, hey, it's just a tree, but its seed went around the moon. So <laughs> that's good. That's nice. No, it, it is cool. And it is great from a PR perspective. That's a really smart program. Yeah, I, I thought so. I think I think it's a really smart thing to just say this is the... This is a moon tree, right? And there are hundreds of them everywhere. There's a moon tree. Everybody feels special, like, oh, wow, NASA space, right? And it's like, yeah, it's this tree. 50 years later, they're still there. So p- please tell me the return was uneventful. There's so much drama so far. Let's splash down. Let's splash down because it was uneventful. February 6th, 1971, uh, that was it. They transferred to, they, they, they took off from the moon transferred all the stuff to Kitty Hawk. You got to load it up, take all those rocks that you gathered and poorly labeled, bring them over into Kitty Hawk from Antares. They jettisoned Antares, which um, crashed back on the moon, littering, just saying. Thank goodness we have that passive seismic experiment. Exactly. 
yeah, we can listen to the moon quake when it smashes down. Um, again, it's a it's a, a salvage opportunity for somebody someday on the moon. They they splashed down three days later, February 9th. It was in the South Pacific, so south of American Samoa, picked up by the USS New Orleans, flown. This was their itinerary. They were flown to Pago Pago, then Honolulu, then Houston. And yes, guess what? The quarantine protocol had not been adjusted yet. They were the final, in fact, people who landed on the moon who had to be quarantined due to fear of moon germs or something. And it was 18 days from when they landed before they were finally allowed to walk free. And as I mentioned before, in the meantime, I believe the newspaper report about the ESP experiment came out. And so those guys got to get, you know, exchange glares (laughs) while in quarantine. (laughs) Do you know what I'm thinking? I know what you're thinking. Yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah. What am I thinking now? (laughs) Like, ooh, whoa. I went out of the stupid trailer. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, exactly right. Well, once they're back in Houston, I think they get like a a room or something. But yeah, it's not. That's good. It's not. It's not great. And, uh, and, you know, that was it. These, uh, these guys never flew again, but, um, Al Shepard left NASA in 1974. He retired as a rear admiral. He was actually the first astronaut to be promoted to admiral rank. Um, he served on the boards of a lot of companies, uh, ran the umbrella company that owned all of those businesses that he had already set up even while he was an astronaut. He's a very successful businessman, uh, making money in both banking and real estate. Uh, in 1996, he was diagnosed with leukemia and died of it in 1998. Stu Rusa left NASA a little bit later in 76. He worked in various businesses. Ultimately, he became the owner and president of a Coors distributor in 1981, selling beer. Uh, he died in 1994 of pancreatitis. And then there's Ed Mitchell. Yeah. Uh, Ed Mitchell left NASA pretty quickly after he and his ESP experiment. His life, however, seemed deeply changed by the events of Apollo 14, but not what you think. Not by walking on the surface of the moon, but by the experience of seeing the entire Earth from space. And you hear this from a lot of astronauts from that period, that the real moment of realization for them did not come, especially if they descended to the the Earth, to the lunar surface. They're very busy during most of that. But when they've got hours and hours to contemplate going to and, and from the moon, looking at the Earth in space, that everything we know is this little blue ball. It deeply changed Ed Mitchell. He founded an institute upon leaving NASA that investigated, yes, again, ESP experiment guy, uh, the nature of consciousness and the intersection of science and spirituality. He also did some work in communications. He seems to have believed in UFOs, just throwing that in there. He also made an interesting legal case, which is in 2011, he tried to sell a camera that he used to shoot photos on Apollo 14, and NASA asserted that it belonged to NASA and that it had just been loaned to him or that he had taken it away. And he said, no, they gave it to me when I left NASA. That was a, that was a gift from NASA. Ultimately, there was a settlement. Presumably, he got paid something, and NASA took the camera and donated it to a museum. But the next year, Congress approved and the president signed a new law that very specifically said any artifacts given to astronauts on early space missions on Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, any artifacts given to them belong to them, not NASA. So there was a there was a little bit of a reform because apparently NASA was kind of loose with the gifts to astronauts in the early days. And then modern NASA was sort of asserting, well, no, those belong in museums and they belong to us and you need to give it back. And Congress said, uh, no. No, no backsies. <laughs> you, uh, you gave it to those guys, and uh, it belongs to them. Anyway, he was the longest surviving member of the Apollo 14 crew. He died in 2016 of natural causes, and uh, and that ends the story of the crew of Apollo 14. I do like to always mention where the command module ends up. And Apollo 14's Kitty Hawk is on display at the Apollo Saturn V Center at Kennedy Space Center's Visitor Complex. I've seen it. It's really cool. It's always cool to see um, command modules, but it was neat to see that when I was in uh, at Kennedy for the SpaceX launch now six years ago. Yeah, and I was I've been there twice and and seen it both times. That you know that Saturn V room is so amazing, and mm-hmm. the Saturn V is so dominant. But yeah, uh, Kitty Hawk is there too. And uh, you had mentioned that in 2009, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter took photos of the landing site, and that's how we now know how close they were 
to their destination on their spacewalk. But it, it also showed what's left of their lunar module. The descent stage, of course, is still there. And it's a really clear, good photo of it. Uh, the lighting conditions are particularly good there. And so you can uh, go and, and see what's left of Apollo 14 on the moon to this day. Yeah, exactly. You can watch those footprints, see how close they got to the rim of Cone Crater, but they didn't get it. Didn't get there. Just missed it. They did. And that is Apollo 14. It is. If you want to read a whole lot more about 14, we have a lot of links in our show notes. You can find them on the web at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 141. There you will also find links to our other Apollo episodes. So if you're just joining us for this one, we've covered a whole bunch of Apollo stuff. So go check out those older episodes. They're all really good. And uh, in late July and early August, we'll be back because we're doing these 50 years after. Late July and early August, we'll be back on the moon for Apollo 15. It keeps going for a little while. It does. We've got a little while left, three missions left. So I think that about does it for 14, Jason. Um, If people want to find us online, they can find you on Twitter as Snell. People can find me there as ISMH. And until next time, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, y'all. What shape am I thinking of? (laughs) Squirkle. Damn it.